Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, new blockades and protests rise up across the country. Uh, we're all aiming towards a peaceful resolution. It is, it is clear in some circumstances that there, there may be some frustration. There's frustration across Canada, but I, I take a step back and, and I think um, let's look at resolving this in the right way. We have an opportunity to do so. Support for the Liberals falls while the Conservatives move a few points ahead. You know, Liberals are perceived as not handling it well, and I think that is the perception. Um, that's going to benefit their, their rivals and their opponents, and that's what's happening now. And the Minister of Official Languages visits the future site of Ontario's first French-language university, something that nearly didn't happen. Faced with public outcry and pressure from both the federal government in Ottawa and from Ontario francophone groups and francophones across the country, the Ford government in Toronto reversed its decision. It's Wednesday, February 26th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald, Dan Legere. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Mark. So there are a couple of elements to this story about the blockades that I find interesting. First is the fact that inevitably when you move in to take down one blockade, as the government is saying is going to continue to happen now, that other protests and blockades will rise up in its place, particularly if uh, the people behind them are motivated to do so, and perhaps even more motivated to because a blockade has been taken down. The other is, and we can talk about this in a moment, uh, the idea that uh, making blockades illegal is some part, is somehow part of the solution here. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leadership candidate, was writing about this the other day, and uh, the implication was that all we need to do is pass a law and this problem will go away. Uh, I think in either case, the, this proves that this solution is is not really very simple, is it? No, uh, it isn't simple. I mean, the mere fact that the Canadian railway system stretches over a full continent uh, in widths and, and it has enormous reach into uh, so many areas of the country. I mean, and, and rail lines go through wild country in many places with very few roads, uh, you know, and there's on, only so many police per square mile, so to speak. And it makes it really difficult for uh, for them to try to, st- you know, cover every area. Now, that said, uh, there aren't a million people in Canada who want to stop the oil industry. You know, this is a is becoming clear there's a fairly small group uh, that's spread out here and there that is able to sort of mobilize fairly quickly and uh, and get out there but um, but you know it, no one yet has figured out the solution to this and it, the solution has to be stop putting up blockades not trying to go run around you know and enforce the law you know as to Aaron O'Toole I mean it's already illegal to block the train. Yeah. It's already illegal to block a highway or a road. So I don't know, he's saying it's going to be a criminal offense. Well, I don't think that would make a jot of difference to people who are carrying out these protests based on uh, on their own ideological priorities, uh, which are strongly held. So I, I, I just don't see waving a law book around at people as, as an effective way to cut these uh, blockades. Yeah, if you change the law, you're still dealing with the essential dilemma, which has been going on for three weeks, which is, uh, do you do you go in or not, right? That's the... Yeah, uh, in, and even at a more basic level, the essential dilemma is balancing the legitimate interests of everybody involved. I mean, 
every one of us, you and I and all our listeners, have legitimate interests in this. So do the Aboriginal groups, so do the protest groups, the governments, etc. So uh, this is what has to be brought into balance, and this is what's out of whack right now. Meanwhile, Peter McKay's campaign manager uh, got into some trouble yesterday by sending out uh, a tweet uh, talking about having gone to church and hearing from people that they were going to spend a day at the range in response to the blockades. There, uh, There are still some examples of people who are deeply involved in Canadian politics who are still very tone deaf about this issue, aren't there? Yeah, and, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that are really not helpful, um, you know, in any type of political campaign. You know, if you have the leader or the candidate, uh, the would-be leader out there trying to strike the right tone and hit the right balance and all that, and, I mean, McKay has already had a few stumbles on that just since the start of his leadership campaign. And um, and yet this now this not all uh, you know he's a former MP from the Barry area he should know better uh, and he has since apologized and uh, for making this sort of apologized you know in the way people do these days well if you know if you were offended then uh, I guess I apologize that sort of thing um, but you know again it just makes you wonder sometimes can't anybody play this game. Um, you know, I, I'm not that old, but I, I can remember days when you'd have political campaigns that were run fairly smoothly. And uh, so far, McKay is off to a rough launch. And uh, although I gather from most people still consi- uh, consider him to be the front runner, um, I think he has to play it a lot more cautiously and, and instill some discipline on his team. And they just can't go around saying things that imply that we're all going to go shooting protesters after church, which is exactly what uh, what Mr. Nuttall was suggesting. Those days that you refer to when political campaigns were run smoothly, did they happen to be before the creation of Twitter by any chance? <laughs> well, you know what? It's, it is incredible, the impact of social media. Yeah. And I'm sure for the millions of people who aren't on Twitter, who must be saying to themselves, what's all this fuss about? Uh, and, and you know, it is indisputably an effective means. I mean, let's face it, Twitter and other types of social media have been one of the key elements in the mobilization of these protests. It's very quick to do that over uh, over uh, WhatsApp or, or text messaging or whatever, the, the you know, the media you're using. A lot easier to organize a, a, a mobile demonstration that way than it used to be in the days where you had to drive around to everybody's house or call them on the phone and sure. you know at their home number sort of thing you know so it's uh, there really is um, a quantum difference in that and and of course Twitter has, has lowered the tone of political discourse yeah. everywhere in the world and uh, no different in Canada obviously. But it's also a place where people can post their random thoughts on a moment's notice, and those are thoughts that, that used to go through filters and don't anymore. Uh, and it's not that people weren't having them 20 years ago. We just didn't know about them. Yeah, and, you know, I think campaigns uh, spend a lot more time trying to maintain message discipline. Yeah. Um, and, and nowadays where we're so kind of, we're going pillar to post at such speed, uh, you know, one thing, something happens that causes instant outrage. We're all upset for a bit, and then we all move on to the next outrage. And, uh, you know, this is, 
I don't think this is not a prescription for for healthy politics. That's yeah. for sure. All right, let's talk about uh, the polls uh, that show uh, the Conservatives up, the Liberals down. Uh, this is a Nanos poll that came out. Do you think that the disruption caused by the blockades is at the heart of that? Oh, it has to be. You know that that is definitely there. I mean. Um, even liberals are frustrated with the way the situation has been handled. I mean, you know, you really have the prime minister and his party trying to balance things which, you know, as of today seem utterly, you know, utterly impervious to balance, you know, that seem all mutually contradictory. I mean, are you going to have concern for the environment and fight climate change, or are you going to have oil development, or are you going to have... Uh, you know, the, the right of citizens to protest and express themselves, or even have police crackdowns on every blockade. Uh, you know, and it goes on and on and on. Are they, you know, do they favor commercial interests and corporate interests or more, you know, citizen-level interests or environment interests? So these are the impossible balancing acts that every federal government gets itself into. And, you know, if the, you know, liberals are perceived as not handling it well, and I think that is the perception, um, that's going to benefit their, their rivals and their opponents, and that's what's happening now. But uh, you know what? I don't think the Conservatives or the NDP or the Greens, for that matter, could manage this one bit better than what the Liberals have now. It's a, it's a you know, a revoltingly complex situation um, with so many elements and so many legitimate interests in it that it kind of defies simple uh, remedies, and and that's the problem. There is no simple remedy. It's a long-term thing. Yeah, and it's the kind of issue, like the economy, that the government's going to wear, the government of the day is going to wear. Um, uh, What about fighter jets? We we heard some news now that there's going to be another three-month delay in acquiring new fighter jets. Uh, This is one of those... uh, I mean, is there... Is there anything so difficult as military procurement for governments? Because uh, these sorts of things seem so inevitable now. They do. And I, I'm at a loss uh, for why that, that exists. I mean, um, you know, the, the government took years to buy new trucks for the Army. Uh, I mean, years. And, I mean, their trucks, you know, the military trucks aren't much different from the ones you see on the street every day. Uh, But yet it it seems to take forever to do that. I mean, and fighter jets with the immense uh, uh, bill for each unit and the kind of... You know they're they're always operating in dangerous environments. They're they're very susceptible to malfunctions and, and an attrition on the fleet. That's what's happened with the CF-18s over the years. And it doesn't matter which one you buy, um, you're going to have those same problems. But uh, I think most of us shake our heads. Well, why can't they just you know formulate a plan and go do it and uh, and get back to us when it's done? But that's uh, the, you know the the commercial interests in this are so. Uh, Strong. There's so much lobbying. You know, you have the American interest. You have the Trump administration. It defies a, a simple uh, explanation, I guess. Yeah. All right, Dan. Great to have your comments on all of this today. Thank you. Okay, Mark. That's Dan Legere, author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald. Uh, we're all aiming towards a peaceful resolution. It is, it is clear in some circumstances that there, there may be some frustration. There's frustration across Canada, but I, I take a step back and, and I think... Um, Let's look at resolving this in the right way. We have an opportunity to do so. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. 
in the National Post, Asher Honickman and Leonid Sirota argue that in a free society, the government can and sometimes must direct the police. They write, Inaction can be just as threatening to the rule of law as overaction. An executive that chooses not to enforce the law acts in principle no differently from one that exceeds its legal authority. In both cases, the government ignores democratically enacted law and decides for itself what the rules ought to be. This does not mean that police should be instructed to storm barricades with weapons drawn. The law must be enforced carefully and compassionately, but it must be enforced. In the Globe and Mail, Andrew Coyne calls for an end to the all-or-nothing rhetoric. Coyne writes, There is room to debate the Prime Minister's responsibility for the current state of affairs, but the idea that reconciliation, development, and carbon pricing could be achieved together was sound enough. However, the debate has been dominated by extreme all-or-nothing voices. Instead of everyone getting something, the growing probability is that no one will get anything. Only when all sides dispense with the fantasy of total victory will there be a way out of this stalemate. At National News Watch, Dan Darling argues it's time to restore predictability to trade in North America. Darling writes, After three years of waiting, Canadian farmers and agri-food exporters need certainty and stability. There is no reopening the deal at this stage. With the Canadian-U.S.-Mexican agreement ratified in both Mexico and the United States, Canada needs to follow suit and fast. Delaying may only have a negative impact on relations with our trading partners, who reserve the rights to move ahead on a bilateral deal if Canada takes too long to ratify. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Minister of Official Languages will be in Toronto today to visit the construction site of Ontario's first-ever French-language university. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, Melanie Jolie, the Federal Minister of Economic Development and also the Minister of Official Languages, will be in Toronto to meet with Mayor of Toronto John Tory and Ontario's Minister of Francophone Affairs Carolyn Mulrooney. They will visit the downtown construction site of Ontario's Université de l'Ontario Français. If this first-ever fully French-language university in Ontario seems to ring a bell, well, it should, because it was in the news when, immediately after the Ontario Conservative government of Doug Ford was elected, it announced it was not going to go ahead with a multi-million dollar project. Then, faced with public outcry and pressure from both the federal government in Ottawa and from Ontario francophone groups and francophones across the country, the Ford government in Toronto reversed its decision. This January, both Ottawa and the government in Queen's Park agreed to split 50-50 the $126 million startup costs of the first ever French university for francophones in Ontario. That funding will be good for the next eight years. The French language university is going to be built right in the heart of Toronto, is set to open in 2021, and is set to become the centre for education for Ontario francophones. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will attend the Liberal caucus meeting and question period. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will speak with the media after his party's weekly caucus meeting. Small Business Minister Mary Ng will speak in Ottawa at Canada 2020's 5th Annual Health Innovation Summit. Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines will make an announcement in Ottawa. Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna will attend an infrastructure event in Stratford, Ontario. And Governor General Julie Payette will visit Thunder Bay, Ontario. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, February 26th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.